Welcome to Dollar Theater. This is the podcast where we review movies that we love, some of which are critically acclaimed and some not so much. I doubt there is any dispute about the acclaim for this movie. It is the number 61 film of all time on IMDb. It currently holds an 8.4 on IMDb, uh, at 82 on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 100% in our hearts. Glad to have two of my friends returning one for the first time since we did Tommy Boy last month, Gail Maitland. And the last time he was on, we were covering Back to the Future, Glenn Thompson. What is up, my friends? Right. I'm hello. Doing, I'm doing hello, pretty hello. Good. Doing pretty good. So let's get into this. The Shining, 1980. A couple weeks ago, we covered Halloween, which is my favorite horror movie. But this is one that I regard as the best. Um, I couldn't, most of these movies I could pinpoint the first time that I saw them. I don't know when the first time I saw The Shining was. I know it was definitely in the early 90s from somewhere between ages 11 to 13. I was watching a lot of Stephen King movies at that time. Uh, it, Misery, Carrie, Pet Cemetery, Sleepwalkers, which is a bad one, but one that, that I, I like a lot. Uh, Creep Show, amongst like many others. I mm. saw all these movies at a very young age. And then I remember just walking through Blockbuster and you see this cover, it's The Shining, and you got Jack Nicholson peering through the door maniacally, and it says based on a Stephen King book. So naturally, I was drawn to this. I wanted to see it immediately. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was simultaneously both terrified and mesmerized by, the, by this film. And now watching it in my 40s, I, I don't even really think of it as a Stephen King movie. I think of it as a Stanley Kubrick film, just based on the fact that King himself has very vocally disavowed this movie. And we're, we're definitely going to talk about that. And within, I was telling you both offline, within the last like six or seven years, mostly during the pandemic, i become borderline obsessed with Stanley Kubrick's filmography. Before that, I'd seen about half of his films and now every box is checked off his list. And we'll, we're definitely going to talk about him more in depth as well. This is a movie that at the same time, it's very confusing and very simple. Um, you can look at some of the imagery, such as like the, the weird naked woman in the bathtub who's like super hot and then she becomes really old and decrepit. Um, you could look at the blood pouring from the elevators or the guy in a bear costume blowing another guy. And you could say, oh, OK, this image, this image represents this. And if you want to know what this stuff means, trust me, you can go on very many rabbit holes on the Internet to <laughs> and you get very, very a lot of points of view on what all this stuff means. But. At its core, this is just a movie about alcoholism, writer's block, and the feeling of isolation. Just combined with an all-time Jack Nicholson performance, it was insane that he wasn't nominated for an Oscar for this. Um, Shelley Duvall was actually nominated for a Razzie for Worst Actress in this film. It was rescinded, but that's fucking insane. Fuck that. That's so mean. Yeah, she rules in this film, and we'll definitely talk about some of the treatment she got from Kubrick. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, she, she's awesome in this. So fuck the Razzies. Um, this movie's awesome. I love it. Gail, why do you? Um, okay, so I saw this. This is a favorite movie of mine, if you can't tell, because behind me is a poster of Jack from The Shining. I love this Can't movie. Top five, thanks. Top five horror movies of all time. Um, top, probably top five movies of all time for me. I, I'm going to swing here because I, I do like, Stanley Kubrick, as we all do, but I don't love Stanley Kubrick. Um, 
I love Stephen King. So I shouldn't like this as much as I do, but I think Stephen King is kind of a baby about this movie and holds his book a little too precious because what Kubrick did with this book and this script um, and these actors and this imagery is something that will stick in your brains a lot longer than The Shining book does. And this movie was horrifying. Dave, you nailed it. It's about alcohol. It's about addiction. It's about domestic abuse. And it's about getting out. And Jack is the star of this movie. But we can't discount Shelley Duvall. Oh, fuck the Razzies. I'm so mad that I just heard that. I didn't know that. I'm so angry. Oh, I'm fired up. Let's, <laughs> let's hand it over to Glenn. All right. So, Glenn, let me just preface this. We all have our blind spots. So, oh, yes. notably, I have not seen Apocalypse Now or Schindler's List. Uh, I saw A Few Good Men for the first time like six months ago. I saw the, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time last week. So yeah. as much as the three of us and a lot of us lo enjoy film and love talking about it and, and know our shit, we all have our blind spots. I was surprised when you, and we did talk about this a little bit offline, when, when I asked you if you wanted to come on for this and you said you'd never seen it. We all have our blind spots. So no judgment. There's half a million movies in the world. We, we're never going to get to see them all. But so your perspective is, is especially interesting to me as a first time viewer sure. of this one. Uh, where did you land with us? Yeah, so uh, first of all, you're, I, I think, thank you for prefacing it that way because I mean, I love movies. I think anyone on this podcast can say we love movies. We love talking about movies and watching them and, and, and being horrible to each other about them when we think we're wrong or, you know, that's all fair game. But no. this is definitely a blind spot that I've had for a while where it's always been like, yeah, I should, I should watch that, right? Because I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Jack Nicholson has always been a favorite guy of mine. Like, Batman as a kid was just in inspiring when he played the Joker, right? Like, so to be like, oh yeah, I just got to watch it. And it was always like, okay, I'll get to it. And so when you said, well, come on and, and do this podcast. And I said, I've never seen it. And it was like, well, shoot. Now, I mean, now I, a, I have to, but B, I, I wanted to anyway. So great. I'm going to watch it to sit down and watch it last night. Um, and we'll dive more into what I mean by this. I was a little bit, especially early on, like surprised by how simple it was. Uh, how how simple the opening was from the credits to the dialogue, you know, and, and sort of thinking like, you know, I was in student films that felt this way. And then to turn around and be like, but the depth is in the, in the, it's the onion, right? You peel back the layers and you get to the middle and that's where the fragrance is. That's where the intensity is. Um, this movie requires your patience, like all Stanley Kubrick movies do, it requires your patience, but the, for me what was the most enjoyable was that payoff at the end where you go oh she got away she got away because they never get away you <laughs> know she did it and, and, but she did and you're going and he didn't the yeah. payoff is she did and he didn't and it was worth it um and because there was a couple times where i was like this is horrifying i think i might ah and then it got to the end i was like nope it was worth it. It was worth yeah. getting to that, the end of that. So that's where I sit with it is it's, it's a, for the first time, having never seen it, getting to the center of that onion was worth it. What a weird metaphor onions. <laughs> All right, there we go. It's been done. <laughs> All right. So Stanley Kubrick, I don't know that he's my favorite director, but he's certainly somewhere in my top five. Um, Gail, you told me this was cute offline, but my, my favorite movie of his is uh, Barry Lyndon, which he, <laughs> he directed cute. in 1975. Not a commercial success. In fact, even to this day, I would I would say if I mentioned this movie to three people, two of them have never even heard of it. 
there's like okay that's a that's a Stanley Kubrick film uh but it's my it's my favorite of his it's with Ryan O'Neill basically trying to manipulate his way through the British aristoc- aristocracy in the 18th century um so after that he wanted to do something Kubrick wanted to do something more blockbuster-ish so he spent a lot of time reading novels to find his kind of next big thing and there's there's a funny story online about his secretary she would hand him several books and many times throughout the day she would hear a book hit the wall that meant he, he did not like the book. And eventually she did not hear a thud for a couple of days. And it turned out that he, he was reading the Stephen King book, The Shining. At, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, like a lot of us, we all had a, all of a sudden had a lot of spare time on our hands. So we watched a lot of TV in that spare time. So I suddenly started to watch the movies of his that I hadn't seen. So I checked off all the blind spots. Um, April 2020, I watched Dr. Strangelove for the first time. That also sent me on a Peter Sellers bender. I started watching like all of his films. And for like every banger, there was like maybe three or four. that I'm just like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? (laughs) 2020 was weird. So yes. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. (laughs) So I saw that uh, Lolita. The Killing. Somehow I had never seen Eyes Wide Shut with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. That mm-hmm. was that was also great. So just couple that with like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Full Metal Jacket, Clockwork Orange, Spartacus. He's kind of that rare filmmaker. You look at his filmography, you, you'll see like the greats, like Martin Scorsese has a couple of misses on his resume. But this guy has, to me, he has, he has none. And he just, just consistently... Didn't make a lot of films. I, I think around 10 movies. I don't have it right in front of me, but not a ton. But everything I, I enjoyed, even if I love some more than others, he's just a great filmmaker. Uh, Gail, any Kubrick thoughts? I mean, like I said, Kubrick isn't my favorite, but he's he's nowhere near the bottom of the pack for me. I mean, he is a top 10 director. Um, he's just not in in my very top because I, you know, I tend to grow like, I don't know, di- di- different, different folks but um I mean I love I love Dr. Strangelove I love Peter Sellers I love like reading that like George C. Scott didn't know it was a comedy right (laughs) so he played it completely straight which makes it even funnier um I love Paths of Glory I love Clockwork Orange um Full Metal Jacket like I I love his movies um the only one that I watch over and over and over again is The Shining. Okay. Yeah, like a lot of us. Uh, mm. Glenn, any, any Kubrick thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you both have brought up, you know, interesting things about him because as a, as a film, as, as someone who makes films, for me, Stanley Kubrick is a hard sell if somebody's like, let's have a movie night and they're like, we're going to watch Full Metal Jacket. I'm not instantly <laughs> like, thank you, great, it's I'll my be comfort there at seven, you know. <laughs> Um, because he's in this, I mean, he, if you look at his filmography, he wrote most of his own stuff, produced most of it, directed most of it, cameraed a lot of it, did set design on, you know, it's like this guy couldn't let go of his movies. He const, if a hair was out of place, he was doing a take again and you're going, I mean, when you read about The Shining, there's some difference, you know, differences on how long it was filmed for. You know, how was Shelley Duvall treated? There's been some questions, you know, about the way things went there, 
and 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 you just think about it and full metal jacket was the same way and eyes wide shut was the same way and clockwork orange was the same way where these were incredibly difficult processes for the people involved and you get these amazing pieces of art out of them but i just don't want to sit down on a thursday and watch clockwork orange and that's, <laughs> right. that's not i don't think that's a bad thing to say it's like gasper no gasper knows films are hard <laughs> to watch really we're not going to just kick back with like climax or irreversible which are great movies <laughs> but, you know, great movies amazing but like movies. i'm not going to call my friend up and be like let's watch i stand alone right, right. like want to hang out buddy up that's where I live with Stanley Kubrick is like Full Metal Jacket is such an incredible piece of filmmaking. And yet I've seen it twice and I, I don't know if there's a third in me, you know, like <laughs> maybe, but it's not like, it's just not there. You know, Barry Lyndon's such an interesting one, Dave. I love that you love it because of course we all, if you know Kubrick's work, that was when critics were like, what is this? Yeah. What are you making? And And now to hear someone like, I've watched it a couple times. I really like it. I'm like, that's fascinating to me. <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, and I think it's great. I think it's great because we all need that. But, you know, Stanley Kubrick, Casper, no, e even so far, I would even go to like a Quentin Tarantino, a person who's so invested in the art they're making that they don't care if you think it's a good film. They're, they want to exist. They want it to exist. They want the way they want it to exist. That's and, what makes Stanley yeah. Kubrick so interesting. And that's what Kubrick did with this film, right? Was Stephen King said, absolutely not. I don't I don't like what you did with this. He wrote a screenplay, gave it to Kubrick. Kubrick never read it. Right. He had no interest <laughs> in reading it. He wanted what he wanted with this movie and it wasn't what King produced. Yeah, allegedly he said he found his writing to be quote unquote weak. So that was kind of harsh. And he wound up, up co-writing the film with uh, the novelist Diane but, you Johnson. Know, I'll tell you, is I'm a huge Stephen King fan, right? He can be a little weak. His dialogue can be a little weak. His endings yeah. are a little weak. Sure. I don't like his ending for The Shining. Sure. I don't like it. I so I don't know if you're familiar with King's ending, but Danny and Danny and Jack are much closer in the book than they are in the movie. In the movie, there's like this this disconnect because you know sure. alcoholic abuser, but in the book they're a little bit closer than Wendy and Danny. But at the end of the book, Jack, Danny helps Jack see, like, I have to help them. I have to help them get out. So he is the one that helps Wendy and Danny get out and, and go. And eh, yeah, I like this. I like full this. House. This is darker. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's full house. Kubrick didn't like it either. So he went this route. And I think this was a better, this was a better ending. Right. Jack Nicholson, one of the biggest movie stars of all time. I think I believe the first time I I was always aware of, of him, but I think I guess the first time I saw him was as the Joker in Batman when I was sure. yeah. eight, eight mm. years old. Right. I yeah. saw that movie. But just I mean, we could talk about his great performances, great films all day. Chinatown, mm. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, we already mentioned, A Few Good Men. Uh, he's someone who could star in a movie and dominate it, or he's someone who could show up for 15 minutes and just take over like he did in Broadcast <laughs> News, for instance. Right. <laughs> um, or he could just he could just blend right into a murderer's row of superstars like he did in The, the Departed. Um, he's just unhinged in this movie. And we'll definitely, in the internet stuff, we'll talk about the casting almost. But this movie definitely isn't what it is without him. Uh, Gail, any Nicholson thoughts or on this in this movie or just in general? I mean, Jack Nicholson is one of my favorite actors. And he always plays the same guy. He always plays Jack Nicholson. And yeah. I can't <laughs> take my eyes off him when he's on the screen. I He's magnetic he has that quality that like 
He has the same star quality that like Tom Cruise has where I hate Tom Cruise, but I love watching Tom Cruise on screen. I love it. I'll watch him in anything. He's so much fun. And I feel the same way about Jack. And when I read about his background and his child life and how he grew up and he just had a very sad childhood. And I, I, yeah. And so I, I'm sure everybody knows, but he was raised by his, he was raised by his his grandmother who said that she was his mother and his actual mother said she was a sister. So he, he, he found all this out later in life and um, he just, he had a hard upbringing. And I think that he's always the center of attention and he's, he's always the one to watch for, whether it's on screen here or at a Lakers game or the Academy Awards. (laughs) Like I can't take my eyes off Jack. And I think he was the perfect, the perfect casting for this movie. Glenn? Yeah, he he's he's just got a face. I think that's the best yeah. way I can say it. There, there is something about his face that is so distinct. Um, I remember, I mean, Batman was an early one for me, but another early one was actually A Few Good Men. My dad and I used to love watching that film together, even before I fully understood what was going on in the movie. Um, and it was it was this idea of, the guy is a powerhouse who pushes the entire time he's on screen, even when he's not talking, when he's just at a typewriter typing. You're like, man, he's hitting those keys with force. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I think you're right. I think there is some, it's, I think it's the charisma side. There, there's just something charismatic about him that even when he's at his worst, you're like, man, I can't tear my eyes away. Um, so I, I really love him. I mean, I've loved him in all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, about Schmidt, The Departed. Uh, I love As Good As It Gets, right? And that's it gets, a which terrible is so movie. Oh, it does, not, it does yeah. not hold up. What did James L. Brooks do there? But it's a great movie. Like it's, right. it's terrible. Don't watch it. But if you have watched it, keep watching it because <laughs> you're not hurting anybody. <laughs> no, no. I mean, he, and he did... I mean, he did this this one in uh, the early 2000s called The Bucket List with uh, Morgan Freeman, which was, Banger. it's it's it one of those hidden sleepers that no one talks about anymore, where you're just like, man, it was so, it was so heartwarming. And it was he, like right after The Departed. Yes. And yeah. He, but that's what he does. He does these films like One Flew Over the Cougars and Nest, and then he also does The Bucket List, and he can play that full range, and I believe him in all of it. Right. Which mm-hmm. is not something I can say about a lot of actors. So, Certainly not. So. All right, so let's talk about the supporting cast here. We mentioned Shelley Duvall at, at the top oh. here as Wendy. Um, definitely not worthy of the Razzie. She, she was fucking awesome in this. Um, there's a lot of internet speculation on Kubrick's treatment of her during the film. Uh, famously, the, t- the scene where she's walking up backwards up the stairs with a bat as Jack walks towards her, that was shot. And, they did 127 takes on that which was at the time the Guinness world record for most takes for a single shot. Um, you know, depending on your perspective, you could say this is abuse or you could say this is a director trying to get the most out of his actor. That's, that's a matter of opinion. Um, so I thought she was really great in this as Wendy, another one who had a bad experience with Kubrick, uh, Scatman Crothers, who played Halloran, the cook. Um, I loved him in this movie. He also became mm. very frustrated with Kubrick to the point where his next film, Bronco Billy, which was directed by Clint Eastwood, who's famous for one take and then we go to lunch. Um, he actually broke down on the set crying because he was so grateful to be part of this set after his experiences on The Shining. Um, so I thought he was really great in this too. Like a lot of great directors, 
you pick your Scorsese, Tarantino, Wes Anderson, what have you. Um, Kubrick gets a lot of actors who return again and again for his films. Um, Joe Turkle as Lloyd, the bartender, just love him. He was also in the killing and paths of glory, just terrifying here. And all he's doing is just doing his job. He's just, you know, he's a bartender. He's, he's serving drinks. He's like, your credit is fine here, Mr. Torrance. Like just, just saying like most simple things, but it's just so eloquent and terrifying at the same time. Uh, Philip Stone as Grady, uh, the, the previous caretaker who yeah. axed yeah. his family. Uh, he was also mm-hmm. in Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, just chilling as fuck, t- talking about how he, he corrected his, his family uh, who was trying to stop him from doing a job. He's just brutal. I, 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 that's one of my favorite scenes. Um, yeah, just a, lo- a lot of good supporting cast here. Gail, anyone stand out for you that who I mentioned or, or I forgot to? Um, I, well, honestly, to me, Shelley Duvall is the standout. I mean, she's she's in the running to me as th- the best part of, of the movie along with Jack because I don't think anybody could have played Wendy the way that she did. Um, Kubrick probably got out of her what he wanted to get out of her because of the way he treated her. So it's hard. It's he abused her. And I a hundred percent agree with that, especially when you see where Shelley Duvall ended up. Um, yeah. She's not in a good place. Um, mentally she's unwell. And I can't say this was Kubrick's, you know, fault. I can't, I can't say he was the catalyst for it, but I can also say that like, this couldn't have helped. And um, I know she had a hard time with this, with this film. Um, but I also know that she gave an amazing performance as somebody who was abused and still trying to save her husband, save her child, do what she had to do. And she got away, like Glenn said at the beginning, like Wendy got away and that doesn't happen. And so Shelly Duvall, I give it to her. She's, she's, she's the supporting cast to me. Glenn, anyone stand out outside Um, of Nicholson? Yeah. I mean, I think you brought up several of them i think joe turkle as that bartender was uh, when you realize he's the one who's sort of getting you into what's actually going on whether you realize it or not and he's so calm the whole time and you can't tell if this is you know jack having a mental breakdown or if if he's just being a writer who's with got a really wild imagination because it hasn't fully developed yet we just don't fully know yet but you're like it's so creepy. Um, you brought up um, Philip Stone, uh, who I, I was like, I was like, you, you feel bad for him uh, when you first see him, and then you just <laughs> groaning because you realize, oh no, this is this is going the direction that we all hoped it wouldn't, which is horror. Um, and and um, even the one uh, who played uh, who played the son, Danny Lloyd. Yeah, you know, oh. as a kid actor, and this was really, as far as I can tell, his only movie, his only real movie. I think it, it maybe he did one other. Yeah, didn't really have an acting career. Um, because this. and it sounds like he didn't want to, but like the idea of like, you know, having I grew up as as a kid actor, you know, like that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard a hard career, and and and. Um, and he did a great job with it, uh, with the finger thing, you know, that, that iconic finger thing was great. Um, so really, and then of course you already said it, Gail, so I don't really want to go back into Shelly's thing. Cause I think she was just, for me, we'll get in. I think she might be my MVP, but we'll get there. Um, but you know that, yeah. 
go ahead, please. Um, oh, I was just going to say, I, I was so unaware of the Razzie thing that it really rubs me the wrong way because of how hard she worked and how much she sacrificed to get the performance that she got. And to be nominated for a Razzie of all things, like how heartbreaking for Shelly. Let's give her, let's give her the MVP just like as a consolation prize. <laughs> um, <laughs> She's still out there, so maybe she'll listen. And um, come on, Shelly. <laughs> well, and 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 you know, it's just such a, a well cast film, beautifully shot. Um, for all of them, this couldn't have been an easy experience because we know Stanley Kubrick was not an easy guy to work with, but they clearly came together to give something that we all remember because we're here talking about it 40 years later, you know. So. To Kubrick's credit, too, I will say that he didn't let on to Danny Lloyd that it was a horror film. So right. Danny Lloyd thought it was a drama. He was acting in a drama. And anytime something horrific happened, like even when Shelley was carrying a doll's body, not Danny's body, screaming, um, they just kept Danny out of the room, which I think credit to... Credit to Kubrick. Yeah, apparently it was super nice to him, like played baseball with him and would send him Christmas cards for like 20 years after, you know, like, holy cow, way to like 180 <laughs> on yourself in terms of how you're treating people here, man. <laughs> Maybe you just needed someone to point to when someone does in an interview, like, how do you feel? What do you have to say about your treatment of ball? And he just, he points to a picture of him, like with his arm around Danny Lloyd, like, am, am I a bad guy? Like, <laughs> That's a horrible and probably truthful way of thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we go into our favorite scenes, we should touch on, we alluded to it, uh, Stephen King, not positive about, about this movie, not right. had a lot of bad things to say. His main gripe was the casting of Jack Nicholson, who he had seen in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And we mentioned that he wanted kind of like a Danny Tanner to be like the super good guy in the beginning who descends into madness. But seeing the guy from Cuckoo's Nest, he was kind of, he was never like even in the beginning of the film, he wasn't deranged yet, but he was kind of an alpha. He was kind of a dick. You could, you know, you could easily see this guy losing his shit by the end of the movie. If you watch the first scene, um, he wanted reportedly either wanted John Voight or Martin Sheen in this role. And apparently Kubrick was uh, non-starter to get rid of Jack Nicholson. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on board with that. He was allowed to make a miniseries. Gail, I don't, Glenn, I'm assuming you haven't seen this. Uh, Gail, I don't know if you no, did. I did read about a... it, but I haven't seen it. So. Okay. I have with Stephen Weber. Stephen Weber and Rebecca De Mornay. Um, he was allowed to make this under the condition that he not publicly bash the, the Kubrick version anymore. <laughs> and I don't really remember, remember much about this. I did see it. It, was, it wasn't good. It's forgettable. I, yeah. yeah. Just, just like a lot of, a lot, the majority of King adaptations, it was forgettable. Like if King loves it, we probably won't. And like, that's okay. Like Stephen King is this precious man who is a great writer. He, he crafts a great story. Mostly short stories are his, like what he does best, but um, his novels are brilliant. He just doesn't know how to end them. And I think that if he just didn't hold it so precious and could have appreciated what Kubrick was doing, they could have maybe partnered up a little bit better together. But it's two alphas with two ideas and it just didn't work right together. Yeah. All right. What do you think of this movie as, Gail? Do you think of it as a Stephen King film or a Kubrick? No, it's not a Stephen King film. It's a Kubrick film. Yeah. Right. I, th I think even Stephen King would say it's not a Stephen King film. I yeah. think he fully put distances himself from this, and rightly so. And mm -hmm. to me, it's actually a perfect example of why very often the writers of the books don't become the writers of the movies, because they can't translate it 
in an effective way. Sure. Very often you see movies adapted by the same author. It just doesn't work. Mm-mm. Um, you know, so. On that note, I will say though. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk more. But so um, Dr. Sleep is a great adaptation that Stephen King did approve of, sure. even though they tied in Kubrick's The Shining. So yeah. they just had to do it the right way. And Dr. Sleep was like this beautiful adaptation um, and, and, and perfect sequel to this movie. And I was, I was really happy to see that Stephen King was on board with it. Cool. I enjoyed Dr. Sleep. It was good. I got it. I got it. As a re- I've only seen it once. I saw it in theaters. I definitely need to revisit. But... Son, have you seen it yet? Or uh, No, I will now. I specifically yeah. didn't see it because I was like, well, if I'm going to watch one, I'll just wait and then watch the other. So. Yeah, Ooh, what a treat. Skip the, skip the Stephen Weber miniseries, but see Dr. Sleep. Mm-hmm. <sighs> All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll go into our favorite scenes. We are back. Favorite scenes. The first one I have written down here just as Tuesday that he puts the puts the captions at the beginning of each scene here. So Tuesday, uh, we get the great imagery here of Danny riding his bike through the hotel. Um, I just I love the, the the orange carpeting and just, you know, you're watching a Kubrick film when, when you're just watching these shots here. Um, we get our fir- he rides past room 237, which is uh, another scene I have later on. So we got to get that foreshadowing here that that some wild shit's going on in, in 237. We get the first signs here that Jack is starting to lose his shit. Um, I, I kind of side with Jack on this scene because he's he's essentially he's not a good writer. We we kind of established that in the beginning of the film. It, he he's never written anything. He's trying to be a writer, and he's going through a writer's block. And Wendy comes in trying to talk to him, asks if she can read what he's written so far, and he hasn't written anything yet. So he he gets annoyed. And I guess you know I've never written anything seriously, but I've dabbled here and there and you know if someone someone were to ask me can i read what you've written when i'm, I'm not finished yet maybe you get a, a little annoyed and you don't want to show it i don't know if i'd react the way jack did here but uh you know he eventually tells her um why don't you start by getting the fuck out of here he, and she's just trying to be nice to him she, she tells him it's supposed to snow later and he, he's like what what the fuck do you want me to do about it like, yeah. he's, <laughs> he's this is like the first sign you know it's, <laughs> you know we do get he does mention she does mention his alcoholism earlier in the movie. This is kind of the first time that he's it's like, all right, he's he's just being a dick here. And he's not in madness yet, but he's the first stone has been thrown. Gail, what do you what do you think of the scene? I I think this scene sets up the character really well in that he he cares more about his writing than his family. And he's slowly, slowly, slowly unraveling. And he's been unraveling since before he got to the Overlook. So I, I, I do like this scene. I always, I always get that chill when he says for her to get the fuck out of there. And Dave, you're not wrong when you're half done writing something and someone comes up and says, hey, can I read what you've got? Like, fuck off. Like, don't know. <laughs> Never ask me that. Like, that's not yeah. appropriate. So, so I mean, Jack's not that wrong. But Wendy's just trying to be supportive and have a conversation because what else are you going to do there all day? Like, you're stuck in the middle of nowhere. It's cold. And, yeah, it's a good it's a good tone-setting scene. Glenn, what's the scene? I'm, I'm sorry, Glenn, what do you think of the scene? Uh, it, it 
it's really odd because I, I think that this scene, like you said, you know, it sets up his character. Uh, Dave, it just felt like, you know, seems like an odd question to ask him when he's in mid-writing. But it's also such an overreaction to anything, you know. And, and it actually reminded me of uh, the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles when Steve Martin doesn't get the car that he's supposed to get. And he goes and rips <laughs> the lady out of the counter with all the, you know, fucking the fuck? car right fucking yeah. now. And you're just going... She didn't do anything, dude. Like, <laughs> what the hell? And and it's, it's funny in the one because it's supposed to be funny. It's horrifying here because she literally is the nicest person we've ever met. And you're just going, yeah, I might leave him too. Like, that. that's harsh. Uh, but if you're going to drive that narrative forward, eventually you got to have a point where he does that. And it made sense to do it a little earlier so you get time to let it rip by the end. Absolutely. Yeah, what's the scene you like? So uh, while this sets up the tone pretty well, the drive to the Overlook does okay. too. So if, first of all, the drive is always, like I love the opening of yeah. this movie. When that music starts and you see that road and those mountains, like you just settle in for a cozy little time by the fire. But um when they're in the car and they're driving to the overlook and the family is just trying to have a nice conversation and Jack brings up the Donner party <laughs> and Jack is snarky to Wendy and Jack, Jack just is kind of a shit to his whole family <laughs> from the get go. And, and, when, and Danny knows what cannibalism is. And yeah. Like, you're saw like, it on the television. Yeah, like, fine. He saw it on TV. You're like, fine. <laughs> like he's so dismissive. He just he's just so yeah, so dismissive. Like I guess that's the word for it. He doesn't have this attachment to his family the way that he does to his writing, to the overlook. And I think we see that disconnect really, really early. Glenn, what's the scene you like? Uh, so one of the ones that I noted right away uh, was the first time Danny actually sees room 237. Uh, he's just been riding his bike down. We kind of were talking about it briefly when you mentioned the Tuesday, but we got into the Jack and Shelly scene, you know, um, uh, and, and when Danny sees it, it's actually looming over him. It's physically imposing over him the way the shot is framed, you know, and you know, it's a little kid looking up at it but it's, it's almost more terrifying than some of the stuff that happens in the film because you're like, it's a monster. It's a monster looming over him. He wants to know what it is. Um, I just, I think some of those shot compositions are so beautiful when it's like, man, the horrors in the aspect ratio, that's how yeah. much this movie's thought about. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, it's, it's brief. It's, it's not a long moment. He tries the doorknob. It's locked. And then he kind of creeps back and gets on his tricycle and tricycles away. And you're like, yeah, go kid, go, go. <laughs> so very much just a moment where I was like, man, you know, it's, it's in every, you gotta watch, you gotta watch to catch those moments. So. Mm. Yeah. Um, so speaking of room 237, I have the, we, we get the introduction of Lloyd, the bartender. This is when we, we realized Jack's fully lost his mind. And that's right after that scene is when Jack goes into 237 um you know jack sits he sits down we know that Ullman, the hotel director said that there's no alcohol in the bar we took it out for insurance purposes so the fact that lloyd is just pouring him bourbon on the rocks is you know he 
Jack's lost it at this point. And I, I just love Joe Turco. We talked about him earlier. Just great in the scene. And uh, Wendy, Shelley Duvall comes up to him and says that, you know, Danny got hurt in room 237. So Jack walks into 237, sees this like hot naked woman just in the bathtub and, you know, gets like most people would when they see like a hot naked woman walking towards you coming out of the bathtub. And then all of a sudden he starts making out with her and then looks at her reflection in the mirror. And says, yeah. Looks like, uh, Glenn, I know you didn't watch House of the Dragon. Oh, oh did you, Gail? Nah. Okay, neither of you did. Okay, yeah, so yes, make... thank you. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so <laughs> the King Viserys reference I was going to make, where he has the sores all over his back, that's this woman when he turns and sees, like, just she's, she's falling apart. They start making out, and she's this decrepit old woman. And, you know, Jack's freaking out. Danny's freaking out in the other room because of The Shining. Mm. Just wild, wild scene here. <laughs> Because of the shining. Yeah. (laughs) As one does. So, yeah. uh, Gail, what'd you think of that scene? This scene is, this scene is an iconic scene uh, for this movie. When the beautiful woman ages before his eyes and rots, like Jack's afraid of his own aging and mortality. And he might never be a writer and all this symbolism. But in, in reality, it's just a fun scene to watch. (laughs) Take away the symbolism. It's a fun scene. It's a horrifying scene. It's one, if you watch it way too early, it's going to scar you for very weird reasons. Um, Just (laughs) like, just like that, that furry blowjob scene. If you watch it too early, it's going to awaken shit in you. So you just have to be really careful with who you show this movie to at what age group, but (laughs) it's an iconic scene. It's a good scene to pick. Glad. What did you think of that scene? Yeah, it's it's so random, Gail. The way you said that is the way I thought about it. There are so many scenes in this movie that if you love movies, you know the scene. You don't have to know the movie to nope. know because that's how iconic so many of these shots are. And first of all, Stanley Kubrick has an issue with women. I don't know what his issues with women no, were, but kidding. in every movie, he's just horrible to women. And I was it's like, bad. here it is again. All right, fair enough. But <laughs> You know, then she's this cackling old witch, and I'm like, damn right, you got exactly what you deserve, Jack. You got exactly what you deserve. You <laughs> went to a woman's bathroom, you made out with her for no good reason. You got what you deserve. And it's horrifying and it's fun. Gail's right, it's absolutely fun because you're going, What's the twist? Where's the mm-hmm. twist? And then yeah. it happens and it's as horrifying as you think it's gonna be. So uh, terrible. She gets up, she walks out of that bathtub bush first, and you're like, where's this going? And then you find <laughs> out it's the evil cackling witch. Oh. But you're right, Glenn, in that so much of this movie is is um just iconic just because of what this movie is. My husband watches this movie often too, and we were watching it and I'd say every 15 to 20 minutes, he's like, this is a meme and this is a meme. And this is, he's like, I never realized just how many memes come from this movie. Like how many scenes you're just stuck on, um, whether it's Jack's face or his little fit throwing the pots and pans, like, or, or the woman in the bathtub, like, you know, these themes. All right. So my favorite scene in this movie, I'm going to talk about now the party in the gold room. Um, this is just, I feel like I was born in the wrong decade. I should have been born in the, in the 1920s, which is, I, I would have thrived at that time. I feel, and this you is might just... have, you might have Dave. wait till the thirties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe just skip those, but this is just, this is the roaring twenties in this scene. We got, I, I know I sent you the, both the picture earlier of, I downloaded midnight, the stars and you, and I was actually playing that at the gym today. So it's, it's like, wow, this, this guy, this guy, fair enough, dude. Fair enough. 
Barry Lyndon. It's definitely like Metallica. Like now it's this this old this old theme song <laughs> that was on at the gym. And that, that's playing throughout this theme here. Um, he walks up packed house. Everybody's in tuxedos. Everybody's dressed really nice. It's basically like an episode of Boardwalk Empire. And he's like, he orders a drink at the bar and you know, he has no money. And I just, sorry, I'm going to do a bad Lloyd impression. He, he says he has no money. He's like, your money's no good here, Mr. Torrance. Orders from the house. And he asks him, he's like, well, who's paying for my drinks? Like, it's not a matter that concerns you, Mr. Torrance. Not at this point. And just, <laughs> he just, he's not even doing anything scary. He's just doing his job. Just matter of factly saying like, this isn't something you need to worry about right now, but he's Joe Turkle just nailed this role for me. Um, he, he walks away and this other waiter spills juice on him. And this turns out to be Charles Grady. And, you know, the, he's like, you know, because Ullman mentions him to be at the beginning of the movie. How this guy named Grady killed his family. He was a previous caretaker. And, you know, Nicholson's just dialing it up. here. He's like, Grady, Grady, you say? And <laughs> he's like, were you the caretaker here? And, you know, he tells him that his son, you know, he drops an N word here, which, you know, isn't ideal. But he does tell him uh, his son is is using telepathy to to uh, talk to this to uh, Halloran. And, you know, he tells him the story about how, how his girls tried to burn down the overlook. So he, he corrected them. And and when my wife tried to stop me from doing my duty, I corrected her as well. And just you're like, what the fuck is happening? Just great, great verb choice there. Corrected them when he killed them with an axe. I. I Love this scene. This is my favorite in the movie. Uh, Gail, what do you think of this scene? This scene is mesmerizing and it's a whirlwind and it's hectic and so much happens in this scene. You meet so many people and you, it's not just about the party, right? But it's about, it's, it leads to that bathroom conversation and clean up the red bathroom, the red, 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 red all over this movie, but that red bathroom and the conversation between Grady and Nicholson and you watch the camera work go. And I am not somebody who notices shit like this, but you notice it because by the end they're in different positions and the camera just spins you around the whole conversation. So you don't know who's who or what's what, or who is the actual overlook. And it's, fascinating to watch fascinating this is a movie that you can literally watch hundreds of times and still not pick up everything that you need to pick up because kubrick as as hard as he is 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 a fucking genius and this movie is really well done and this is a scene that that shows that shows it off love it uh glenn what'd you think of the scene yeah this this is uh this is where one of the lines that maybe haunted me the most and and should haunt you you know i've always been here you've always been here you know <laughs> yeah that idea you've always been the caretaker that 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 moment where you're like all right this ball i mean we started to see it the first time the bartender was there but you could write that off as fleeting imagination he's just playing out a scene in his head now it's a full ball the the running with grady the the drinks are on the house and you're going where is this guy where is he stuck and it's the first time that really reality starts to blur, not just for him, but for everyone in his wife and his kid too, where you're going, uh, I think, I think we're getting to the end game now, you know, stuff's going to start moving here. And, and, you know, to, to, to foreshadow the final shot of the movie, basically. Yeah. Uh, and going, 
if you're watching and paying attention, this is it. This is the moment where it kicks off. Um, was huge. So I I thought it was a great scene, and I and I I think Gail, you're. I think I could probably watch this ten more times and hundred times, and and still not catch all the details that are there. Mm-hmm. The last scene I have written down here is the ending of the movie. Uh, before we go there, did either you you have anything you wanted to touch on? I got there's so much. I mean, there's there's so many scenes that I can talk about. Um, and I don't know where you want to hit on what, Dave. And it'll probably be I found it on the internet. So I'm gonna wait until you get there because I have more to say about um the conspiracy theories about this movie because that's fun that's fun so i'll wait on that i like the small part uh in this movie by tony burton who plays durkin the guy halloran's talking with on the phone just because i spotted it right away that's duke from the rocky films apollo creed's trainer yeah so good to see him for that one scene even if it wasn't a super pivotal scene in the movie just it it was cool seeing him you you know every week every week i think i mentioned where i do the dicaprio meme where i'm just pointing at the screen and that was that was me again watching this. All right. So the ending of this movie, we I mean, the last three, all the movies we covered for for October, the horror films, all the great ones, uh, Scream, Halloween, Midsummer, all had a banger 20 minutes, final 20 minutes of the film. And this one mm. is, is no different. It just we're off and running. Uh, we see the Wendy walks up to see what Jack's been writing. And it's just all work and no play makes makes Jack a dull boy several times. This is one of those Gale, like uh, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction that we don't know. Mm. We don't know what happened here. Uh, it was one that Kubrick left unanswered in terms of, you can read many things on the internet. Like Kubrick wrote this himself. He had his secretary do it. Um, somebody said you could just have your typewriter automatically do that, but no, because there were indents, there were misspellings. Mm-hmm. So somebody, somebody did this and it's like up in the air as to like, it's it's an unanswerable question in in movie lore, uh, so I, I like that. Um, this is the scene that was 127 takes, so you, you could tell. I'm even looking uh, at Shelley Duvall, and she just looks. Oh, like, she's haggard. Yeah, she's haggard. I'm, that poor woman, and she delivers. Like that scene is terrifying. You can see the tenderness in her eyes still even after 127 takes or whatever take he ended up using, but you can see it in her eyes that she still cares about him. She doesn't want to hurt him. So she's swinging and missing. She's swinging and missing. And it's a purposeful miss. It's a purposeful miss. She's backing up. She's not, she's not like, she's retreating. She doesn't want to hit him. It's, it's, it's such a good performance. And Nicholson just unhinged in the scene, darling. Oh life yeah, of my life. <laughs> With all the I'm not gonna hurt you. Yeah, I just want to bash your brains in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> Uh, so she hits him with the bat. Uh, this is, you know, a lot of the, the the memes and stuff we get from the ending of this movie. Danny, I also can't see that that scene, that particular scene, without seeing that Simpsons Treehouse of Horror from yep. like what 1994. Yep. Like, oh man, it's such a good, it's such a good Treehouse of Horror, such a good one. The shin, the shinning. Um, but... <laughs> I, I would uh, say too, there's a bit of that early before the bat scene broke my heart was when she put Danny down to watch TV and you saw her pick up the bat as quietly as she could. So she didn't, so he wouldn't see, right. You get to the unhitched part. She is trying so hard to keep him from noticing what's going on. You know, such a good mom. She's such a good mom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She rules. Um, Yeah. We get, 
you know, he writes red rum on the wall. She sees it in the mirror that it's murder. It's, it's, you know, the, the music plays like, nah, 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 nah. it just, you know, Kubrick. Another thing that's like internet lore is how long did this movie take to film? They said principal photography lasted a year. And then he spent anywhere from one to five years editing. It just, I heard 500 just, days. I mean, I've heard everything. I mean, all these well, numbers, 500 days filming most movies film for six weeks. Yeah. Five, Hundred days. Oh. Well, if every scene gets a hundred days. Oh, I know. I just, but <laughs> I just, my mind hurts even trying to. These poor actors. Like, how did Danny not age out? Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, just so much cool imagery in here. Uh, Norman Gay at the end as the party guest. He's got the blood from his head, and he's like, "Great party!" Mm-hmm. And he's just covered in blood. Um, what else happens here? Uh, we do see the the bear blowjob. That's just totally random you know we could theorize what that means but i I think it's just kind of like Mm. just a random crazy thing that they wanted to put in this movie um another thing i I noticeably i read about you know we we saw how broken shelly duvall was i think jack nicholson was just as crazy as kubrick so he didn't really mind like the treatment it didn't really seem to from interviews watching him in interviews didn't really seem to phase him um he said the script was changed so much during the filming that he would get a script, not even read it because he knew it was just going to be changed again. So he it was just a lot of this stuff was done on the fly. And I thought that that was an interesting tidbit there. Um, this is where he, he chases after them with an ax. We get the here's Johnny moment. Uh, Kubrick, who was from London, didn't get the reference and almost didn't use it because he had no idea what the, the Johnny Carson, the Tonight Show was. Yeah. Oh, so my he, God. He, he, thank God he did. Uh, <laughs> but he, he did. He's actually like, I don't get it. Um, you know, we get the foreshadowing earlier in the film where Wendy and Danny are walking through the maze. So we know that Danny knows this maze very well. So when he leads Jack into it, he knows what he's doing. Um, mm-hmm. we, we get the, the final shot here, of Jack freezing to death. Well, that's not, that's not the final shot. The final, final shot is them zooming in on the 4th of July party in 1921. And we see Jack at the, the center of it. That's another thing you could try to figure out what that means. The symbolism there. Or you could just enjoy the movie and say this was awesome, which it was. Uh, Gail, what'd you think of the ending? Um, the ending is big and loud and heroic for Wendy and Danny, and um, sad, just really sad for Jack to see him end up where he ends up. And I know he gets what he deserves, but it even the Jack that we know from the Kubrick film, it's really hard to hate Jack because I, I feel like you follow him on this journey of being unsuccessful and doing what he has to do to, to combat aging and to combat um, just not being who he wanted to be where he is and, and this family that he doesn't really want. And it's just hard not to feel bad for him. But when you see his smiling face in that picture from 1921, like it's, he's back where he belongs and he's just going to continue the circle of being here however he has to get there. So there's a cycle and, oh, maybe they'll break it in Dr. Sleep. Who knows? You guys will have to watch that one. <laughs> Go on, what'd you think of the ending? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, you, when, when you read about writing or you, you study writing or you write yourself, they always talk about make sure you build, 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 right? Everyone thinks that, that the writing is a hill, but really it's a, a cliff. You got to get to that climax 
late because otherwise people what what the hell is the point of getting through the back half of your book right and and in this mm-hmm. movie they push right to the very end um uh even to the point where i i think i can see where king didn't like the ending because if if dan if if jack is trying realizes long enough that he should be trying to help them escape then there's a little potential redemption for him which you yes. don't get here there's no you redemption for jack in this um but it's interesting too because stanley kubrick left so much of this bag on purpose when i was reading about it for this and having seen it and reading about it after to, for this you know the only thing he really clarified was that last shot he was saying it's meant to be a reincarnation idea. It's meant to be the idea that his soul is always there waiting for him to come, waiting for the next version of him to come back. Um, and, and and to say, to, to have a director who said, I don't need you to understand it, purposefully clarify something is telling you that he, he, <laughs> he didn't, he wanted you not to have to guess too much. Uh, it's like but, the Sopranos ending. If he came back and he's like, Tony's dead. Right. <laughs> Just need you to know. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I just think that's the pusher is like this movie. Um, if, 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 if what it really is, is a cycle that just keeps repeating itself with whoever the next incarnation is, that's a far more interesting idea to me than, 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 this guy lost his mind because of alcoholism, right? This, this is the horror is that you can't ever escape it. Um, and I find that fascinating. Did either of you read about the, the alternate ending that was shot? Uh, I, I saw there was one. I didn't read about it though. Okay. It, I'm it, actually it, not familiar with it. So tell me. It doesn't, it, you can't find it on YouTube or anything. It, the, the, the footage doesn't exist. Maybe it exists in like Stanley Kubrick's basement or something somewhere, but we can't find it as civilians, but it was scrapped and the original scene was it was Wendy and Danny in a hospital where Ullman, the hospital director or the hotel director um, meets up with them and says, you know, we can't find Jack's body, you know, even though it was in the snow, it, his body was dis- his body disappeared Ooh. and he, they, they wind up having a conversation and he offers, he lets them stay in the hotel while they recover from their. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, I'm going back there. To do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you. Sir. <laughs> Not interested. <laughs> but thank, thank God they, they didn't do this. They scrapped that because the final shot of just jacket at the ball there in the, in the photo is chef's kiss. That That's perfect. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that, that was shot. You can't, I don't know. Maybe I didn't look hard enough. I was on like page nine of the YouTube search results and I got, I got nothing. So yeah, it was dedication or as much as I was willing to get. It wouldn't surprise. I bet Stanley Kubrick was like, nope, nope, get rid of it, burn it. Because that been- <laughs> <laughs> All right. On, with that note, great scenes. Awesome movie. According to the internet, uh, there were some interesting casting almost for Jack here. Um, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams were heavily considered here along with Harrison Ford. Um hmm. Kubrick saw De Niro in Taxi Driver and thought he wasn't crazy enough, ironically, which is okay. interesting. And then he saw Robin Williams and Morgan Mindy said he was too crazy. I Harrison Ford, you know, this is 80s. This is coming off of Star Wars. Could have worked, but this is Jack Nicholson all the way. But these are some interesting ones to talk about. Gail, any of those stand out for you? No, nah, Harrison Ford, I think to me, works the least out of all of them. But I... Okay, so De Niro, I think could have, I think De Niro could have done this because he did Cape Fear, and that's what I thought about right away. Yeah, and he did Taxi Driver, and he's really good at playing slowly coming unhinged. But I think 
Kubrick's Jack has to be unhinged from the start. Right. But I think that he didn't see enough of dramatic Robin Williams yet because Robin Williams in like one hour photo, Robin Williams played dark or um, what was the one that he did for Bobcat Goldthwait? I think um, uh, World's Greatest Dad. Death to Smile. He's done some dark shit. Like. Right. Yeah, he's done some dark shit. Well, Insomnia was it? Wasn't that a King adaptation? Or was that a different movie? I I'm forget. not sure. That was a that was a Nolan film. It. Christopher Nolan. Oh, it was. Director. Oh my gosh! Right, I did see it because it, it was with Pacino. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Ooh, it's been a while. Um, but yeah, Robin Williams can play unhinged. I think either of them would have been okay. Um, but this was Jack's role. Sure. Glenn. I think I would have been devastated if this had been Robin Williams. I personally, I love <laughs> what he did in Insomnia. Uh, I really think, you know, could he have done it? Sure. Robin Williams, to me, could have done pretty much anything. But if I had him in this, I don't know that any of his other movies would have felt the same after doing this. If he would, you know, because it's... You're right. Like, Goodwill yeah. Hunting, how do you get that touching response when he's no. fucking chasing Wendy and Danny with an axe? I also but would I be very he... curious if he would have ever seen what Kubrick was doing on set and been like, yeah, sure, let's keep making this. Like, I don't... He probably <laughs> wouldn't have. You're right. He was no. a kind man. He but Didn't he... I mean, I, it was just a meme. I haven't fact-checked it, right? But didn't he bring in homeless he used people to, to he work used to on his set? He used to a rider in his contract that a quarter of wherever he was filming, they had to be people who needed jobs. Homeless, Good man. Or, you know, Good and man. Like, but, but like... And then knowing how he how his life ended and who what he was really carrying, I feel like a film like this would have been a breaking point for him because of the way Stanley Kubrick works. So I'm really glad it wasn't him. If I'm going to go on that tangent, Harrison Ford, sure. I mean, it's Harrison Ford in that what early uh, early 80s at this. It would have been 1980. So sure, he did he ever it. play Unhinged though? Ever like? I don't, well, I mean, he did like you know he did Roman Polanski stuff, right? Uh, witness was that wrong? Yep, yep, right. Yeah, he did mm. stuff that I think could have passed for it, but it just would have been Harrison. It would have been like Tom Cruise doing the part. It would have been Harrison Ford yeah. doing the part. Robert De Niro after Taxi Driver, that man could have done anything. But he he yeah. said, I read this when I was reading for the podcast. He said the film scared him for a month after he saw it, so I doubt he would have made it through the filming. What a <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let alone, you know let alone filming the thing. So I, I don't know. I think, I think Jack Nicholson was the perfect choice. Um, could the others have done it? Yes. But I think Jack Nicholson was the perfect choice. And ironically, not the first time that Robin Williams almost got a Jack Nicholson part because he was famously one of the finalists for the Joker. Right. Nine years later. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I have a couple more here, but they're kind of anecdotal. Did either of you have, uh, so I'll say I'll table them. Did either of you have anything? Yeah. I know you said you had someone you wanted to mention. Oh, I mean, the conspiracy theories, right? Yes, Are either of you? Yes. So Room 237 is a documentary that came out discussing the major conspiracy theories surrounding this film. And there's many of them. Um, but the biggest one that I want to touch on, because it's funny to me, <laughs> is that Stanley Kubrick directed The Moon Landing and this right. film is his confession slash regret for filming the moon landing. There's a lot of reasons why. One of them being Stephen King's film or Stephen King's book. They mentioned Room 217. 
Stanley Kubrick changes it to 237 for a logical reason in that the hotel actually has room 217 and wants people to stay there. But Stanley Kubrick, that people say changed it to 237 because y'all, the moon is 237,000 <laughs> miles away from the earth. Naturally. <laughs> but I have to tell you, so I watched this documentary and it's fascinating. Y'all, you should watch it. It is fascinating. I, d- um, I just didn't get to it. I, it's on, you can find it online for free. Yeah, highly recommend it. But yeah. for years and years, I, um, when I first got married, I started telling my husband that I didn't believe in the moon landing because I thought it was funny. And um, <laughs> he truly thought that I did not believe in the moon landing. <laughs> For years and years and years until, you know, the conspiracy theorists started running away with the country and I had to finally confess because it wasn't cute anymore. I was going to take that to my deathbed, but um, we watched this, we watched Room 237 and I kept like storing like nuggets of knowledge on like why Stanley Kubrick directed the moon landing. So I would drop them. So it's, it's a fun, it's a fun documentary. I do recommend it. I do do need to watch it as soon as I can. Um, couple more here. Like I said, they're just anecdotal here. To get Jack Nicholson agitated for, for the role, he was allegedly fed only cheese sandwiches for two weeks. And he that wouldn't apparently... agitate me. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Say, I'd, I'd be in I'd... heaven right there. Yeah. Give me all the cheese sandwiches. I want one now. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was just, I don't know if that's true, but it, it was on the internet. Um, another one here. Nicholson was a huge tennis fan. Mm. He's uh, We obviously know him as a big sports fan. Uh, he did not want to miss Wimbledon, so he faked back pain so he could take time off filming. And apparently Kubrick oh. was watching Wimbledon on TV and saw <laughs> Nicholson in the front row with two gorgeous women and got, got really, really angry about seeing this because he left work sick. And, and probably was... turned around and said, Shelly, we're filming. Let's go. <laughs> why not? <laughs> Famously, nine years later, when he did Batman, it was in his contract that we don't film when there's Lakers home games. I guess he couldn't get. Oh, so, Jack. yeah, you know, this league. So he, uh, you know, he found a way to get to, get to Wimbledon, you know, kudos. But those are a cu- couple funny ones there. So good stuff from the Internet. OK, trivia. I got a Nicholson director question. He's 78 IMDb credits. He has worked with um, some of the biggest filmmakers. Obviously, we're talking about him in a Kubrick film tonight. Uh, he's been in a couple of Tim Burton movies, Batman, Mars Attacks. He's also worked with you know some actors converted into directors. So I'm going to give you a list here of directors. Tell me which one of these he has never worked with. Okay, so hmm. you're going to hear some random ass names on this list. Sean Penn. Martin Scorsese. Danny DeVito, Rob Reiner, Roman Polanski. Did I say Brian De Palma? Not yet. Brian De Palma, last last one. Who was the first one that you said? I'll read the whole list again. Oh, Sean Penn. Yeah. I'm going to say Sean Penn. Okay, never worked with Sean Penn. All right. Glenn? I'm going to say... I'll say DeVito. Danny DeVito. I don't know what he would have done with him, so... Okay, so for this is a rarity. Both both the incorrect. Fair enough. Um, did two movies with Sean Penn, Gail, The Crossing Guard and The Pledge. I Obviously, like I, I saw The Crossing Guard. Blind spots, Gail. Come on, watch some more Sean Duh. Penn movies. What Come an on. asshole I am. <laughs> right, this show's over. Thanks for listening, everybody. Gail's gonna go watch some movies. <laughs> Next time, Sean Penn, a retrospective. Um, 
Glenn, Danny DeVito directed Hoffa, which he also starred in. Uh, okay. Danny, so, di- Danny directed Hoffa? Yeah, did you know, and I didn't mention this, Gail, when we did Pulp Fiction. Did you know he was also an EP on Pulp Fiction? I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. That, I, that little man has been fucking everywhere. Uh, and yeah. now he's on Twitter. So you much. seeing him? You seeing him on Twitter just yeah. trolling, 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 pay, like making people pay their troll toll all I over Twitter. Hope, like I hope to be great. the troll he is when I'm his age because he so has good. earned it. He's a treasure. Oh, he's oh. a treasure. He's a treasure. Oh. So anyway, the, the the correct answer of Brian De Palma never did a, a movie with Brian. We should have known when you couldn't remember what name yep. you had. <laughs> yep, I skipped it because oh, I have it. I yeah. have it on my notes here in all caps. That's usually I write the correct answer in all caps and I forgot. To it. I was like, I just gave my, I just gave myself away, but I, thankfully I, I I skated by this week. Okay, awards time. Sixth man of the film is for anyone listening who does not watch basketball like I do. Sixth man is someone who is not the star of the team, supporting character, who had a major impact on the movie, in your opinion. There were a lot of candidates for this. Um, I guess you could technically count Shelley Duvall in this category, although I think both of you alluded to you might have her in the MVP race, which, cool, that if either of you chose her, that would give me a, an Instagram poll. Um <laughs> <laughs> but we, we don't base our awards on that necessarily but oh, my bad. Um, okay. <laughs> um you, danny lloyd might, might be a candidate for this um but ultimately i went with joe turgle as lloyd i, I kind of displayed my my affinity for him throughout this show i just i love him just he's he's terrifying and doing nothing he's just He's mm. giving out drink orders and just telling them, you know, your, your tab's paid for, you know, don't worry about this. And he's just, you know, he's a veteran of uh, Kubrick films. And I just, I, I love him in this role and he doesn't really play a big part, but he's, he's essential to the film in, in my opinion. So my sixth man for this is Joe Turgle as Lloyd, the bartender. Gail, what say you? I think that's a really good pick, but I, I feel like I have to pick Scatman Crothers because he can I just say when we get to him laying in his bedroom watching TV <laughs> the posters <laughs> with those posters <laughs> I saw it and I was I like oh like okay that was his personal touch I don't know I don't know um but I I really liked him in this role he was lovable he was understanding he was um he was just this guiding star that Danny had um, to kind of lean on and talk to when, when nobody else was there for him. And I think that, I think that Scatman played, um, played Dick Halloran just in a really unique way. So I'm going to give it to him. Arguably the most shocking scene of the movie too, when he gets killed, because Jack just jumps, comes out of nowhere and fucks him up with that ax. That's yeah, he does. Though it's so hard to watch. Yeah. But yeah, great, great pick there, Gail. Uh, Glenn, where'd you go with this one? I, I actually also had Scatman Crothers um, because of a lot of what Gail said. And also, I just, I, I, having never seen the movie and thinking, okay, here's the trope where he's going to show up too late, you know, which I hate. I actually think is a horrible trope. Oh, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> just don't even have it. Like, but a guy who cares when he has no real reason to care does everything he can and gets the worst ending possible out of all of it. And, and just the, I mean, Scatman as, as a, as an actor, you know, haven't seen a lot of stuff that he did, but had a real career and, and just really, I'm sorry in advance shined here. Uh, It was really, 
cute. It was, oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but that's where I went. I just, I really think um, uh, that he, he, he was, I was rooting for him uh, right up until the, the end. Also not super familiar with this filmography, but I do need, the, I was, int- I am interested to see that movie Bronco Billy that he did right after this. Yeah. The Clint Eastwood film. That yeah. Yeah. Like something that might be on my hour. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> it's on the list. MVP uh, for me, this was uh, fairly simple. One of the easier ones I did. This is for me. Maybe you two go a different way, and that's that's totally fine. But for me, this is this is a Nicholson film. Um, I just, he's just the film doesn't work without him, and he's just terrifying. I don't know if this. I said I don't know if this is my favorite role of his because there's so many to choose from, but it's up there. It would be top three for certain, and so his performance as Jack Torrance in this was uh, nobody else could have done it like he did. So for me, MVP of the movie, Jack Nicholson, Gail. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue with Jack. I have to go with my heart here and say Shelly because she was done dirty over and over and over through her whole life. And watching her as Wendy Torrance is a real treat because Stephen King hated how Wendy Torrance was portrayed in this movie because he thought all she did was scream and whine and cry. And I disagree. I think Wendy was a, was a abused, neglected mother who was trying her best to, to keep her family together. And I saw that. I saw that in Shelley's performance and I saw the worry and the hope and the fear and just the, the escape at the end was, was, she was so terrified and whether it was the hundred takes or, or just Shelly, she was terrified. She was shaking and she still got the family out. And I, I, I can't not give it to Shelly. Good pick. Can't argue against it. Glenn, which side of the force did you land on? Thank you, Dave. Thank you. (laughs) I really appreciate the the spirited interaction. (laughs) I just witnessed uh, because I actually was really on the fence. I, I think that you are both hitting points that I made to myself when I thought about this, knowing that this award was coming. Typically, my answer has been to go with whoever's on the poster. I think that's a solid rule to live by. You're getting a lot of traction out of that person, clearly. Um, I I am going to fall to Shelly Duvall, or Shelly's side here, because... Um, a, a lot of the points Gail made, but B, we put a lot of light in horror movies on the, the tropes that make them work or don't work. Recently, I read an article about Jamie Lee Curtis being done with Halloween and how she was the ultimate final girl. But I remember watching this last night going, no, Shelley Duvall is the ultimate final girl. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I love Jamie Lee Curtis. Halloween movies are great, some of them. Sure, um, they're okay. You know, and, and she is the reason that some of them are great, in my opinion. Um, but... Shelley Duvall went through hell and back and didn't leave and didn't give up. And this movie exists because she didn't give up. I'm sorry. You can say it was Kubrick. You can say it was Jack Nicholson because it was Jack Nicholson's movie. But this movie exists because she was willing to put up with the shit in order mm-hmm. to get it made. So I, I think Wendy she was, Shelley was, they were together. They <laughs> were one. I agree with you. And, and if you can't, and the sad part is you can't tell the difference when it's which one. So it, that, that right there alone would be enough for me uh, to, to give it to her. So can't argue with either one. So we'll see. Uh, those will be some polls later on in the week. Um, Gail, what is something good you watch this week? Oh, geez. Well, so for October, 
I, you would have thought with the Aggies, I was going to say Rick and Morty, but I'm a little behind on that. But for October, every day in October, I watch a different horror movie and I plan it out every year. Um, so I've watched a lot of horror this year. Um, this past week, um, I'd like to talk about three movies that I have watched that are wonderful. And the first one is the original Wicker Man from the 70s. Ooh. It is a perfect folk horror. If you listen to the Midsummer podcast, which was last week, double team that with the Wicker Man because it is lilting and lovely and fucking horrifying. So watch that movie. It's a lot of fun. The second one is an Australian movie called The Loved Ones. And a lot of people don't know this movie. Many people don't know this movie. I'm many. I'm many people. It's a it's an Australian horror film, so they know how to go batshit. Bless them. I always find some of my favorite horror comes from Australia. And it's about a girl who doesn't get the prom date that she wants and enlists her family to help her get the prom date that she wants. And then things kind of go haywire and you find out who this girl and her family really are. And it's a lot of, it's, it's, okay. it's bonkers. It's bonkers. And then the last one I watched this past weekend was Pearl. And okay. I fucking loved Pearl. I fucking loved it. I loved Fire. it. I loved X. I loved Ty West, but Pearl was a masterpiece. Mia Goth deserves every award, just like Tony Collette did for Hereditary, but they never give awards for women in horror. But Pearl was, Pearl was a treat. Pearl was a joy to watch. So those are three things that I have watched recently. I just remember like the start of Mia Goth's monologue because I also saw this in theaters. And, and it's like, you know, like a minute in and you're just like, okay, wow, this is cool. And then you're like three minutes in, you're like, I was literally like, I sat up in my seat. You know, I'm in an AMC theater, so I had the seat rest up. I literally <laughs> unreclined my seat and I'm just like, Wow. We're talking for five more minutes. This yeah. somebody clocked this at like eight minutes and 15 seconds. Go ahead. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but she does this eight minute and 15 second monologue where she's sure. just riffing. And I was just like, holy fuck. And like, on oh, that last shot, that last shot, oh, yeah. that fucking last shot. Oh, that my girl. Yeah, I can't wait for Maxine when this trilogy wraps up. She, you know, she Me played. Too. Uh, she really sunk into that, right? Playing yeah. two roles in X, and she's like, "Hey, Ty, I'm going to produce some movies and write some movies with you." Yeah. Like it was just smart of her. She rules, and so does this trilogy. So, well, at least the first two thirds of it. Thanks. Did you see Pearl, Glenn? I'm not yet. Uh, Have you seen X? Uh, no, because I've been told just to sit down and, and, and do it as a whole thing now. And I'm willing to do that. I just, I like that. I have a partner yeah, who bad. doesn't enjoy horror movies. So I have to be very cautious about what yes. I have to watch them. Um, that is a hard thing. Yeah. I force my husband, but I mean, I don't give a shit. So <laughs> well, it's odd when, you know, high anxiety can ride when we do it. A hundred percent. So I have to be, yep. careful. uh, <laughs> um, uh, Sorry, I don't want to interrupt if you're still going. No, I was about to ask you. I'm okay. good. I was about to tee up, Glenn. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, in that vein, we, we actually just don't watch a lot of horror movies, and it's not anything other than it's just not something our household does a lot of. Um, yeah. We finally sat down six years ago on our first date. We bought American Werewolf in London uh, <gasps> to watch and didn't watch it because she wouldn't watch it with me. Uh, six years later, I finally convinced her to sit down and watch it with Yay. me. Yay! Uh, did she I, like it? Uh, she did. Here's the thing, right? I thought it was great until the credits rolled. I think they destroy the movie by having this poppy song roll right after this wonderfully horrifying scene of chaos. Um, it's like emotional whiplash 
out the gazoo, but the movie is so good that I will absolutely rewatch the movie and just stop it before the credits roll because I think it's not worth it. Um, it's, you know, if you've never seen it, it's, it's not a complex movie, but there's a lot going on. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. Um, uh, and it's worth, for me, I have found that new waves of horror don't hit me the same way as these older horror movies do the shining American werewolf in London. Um, you know, Rosemary's baby, these kind of classics where it's like, man, I'm in the mood and I'm watching it. Uh, uh, in that, in the kind of Halloweeny fall vein though, we also did uh, our annual rewatch of a mini series called over the garden wall, uh, which was cartoon network. Uh, Oh, I love it. I love the poster I'm seeing right now. Uh, if you have not seen it, cartoon network put it out, um, years ago and it's just, it's, I think, you know, 10 episodes, 11 episodes, it, uh, 10 minutes a piece. It's really easy to quick to watch, uh, but it's a perfect, like, welcome to fall show with a delightful. little bit of Halloween-y, but it's kid-friendly in so many ways also. So if you have kids, that's great too. Um, and the music is great. And I just, I think it's uh, it's worth mentioning because we watch it and I just love, every year I forget about it. And then it's like, October comes and we're like, oh no, it's time. We got to watch it. Um I love that. And then we jump in the time machine because here's the thing most people don't know about me until they meet me. I have been 93 years old for the past 20 years of my life. I'm an old, old man. Uh, we started rewatching the sitcom Taxi. Uh, Taxi's oh, brilliant. Is, yeah. so brilliant. Uh, I think, Dave, on the when I was on for Back to the Future, I mentioned when I was two years old, my mother would find me watching it at like two in the morning. She'd come down and I'd be <laughs> watching it, laughing to the laugh track into the physical comedy. And so I finally saw they had the complete series on Amazon. I ordered it and we've been watching it. It's so perfect. It's Danny DeVito. It's Judd Hirsch. It's Mary Lou Henner. Uh, it's um, uh, Tony Dan. Christopher Dan's, Lloyd. Uh, uh, yeah, Christopher Lloyd. Um, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman, right? It's a it's a the star-studded cast right before James Burroughs, who directed it, would go on to do Cheers. If you've never seen it, get Paramount Plus or buy the DVDs and watch it because you will go, man, for a show from 78 to 83, this holds up. Holds up. I love it. We've been having so much fun with that. So those that's what we've been watching. Um, and it's not anything necessarily new, but it really is fun to go back to these classics and be like, these are great. These are great. That's good inspiration. My husband and I were just talking about rewatching um, the Dick Van Dyke show because it's That's it's fun. a it's a treat. It's, it's a treat. Like we both grew up on Nick at Night. My husband's from Tennessee. He's from Memphis, Tennessee. He has no oh, accent. He's yeah. like, it's because I was raised by Nick at Night. So. Yeah, yeah, that happens. <laughs> yeah, and Taxi's one of them. Like, that's a great pick. Oh man! So, and just talk and- about a cast that aged tremendously. Yeah, Danny DeVito Ooh. in that show, Judd Hirsch, Christopher Lloyd, just just. All stars. You know, we lost Andy Kaufman way too young. And nah, he's know, still here. In <laughs> in spirit, here. in all the ways. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I will say, here's what I will say about it. It's like I think we got the set for thirty dollars on Amazon, and it's the complete series. It's really amazing condition for a show that is, you know, almost forty five years old, um, and timeless in so many ways. The episodes where they're 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 making fun of certain things, but not in the way you'd expect for a show from the late seventies, early eighties. So not like all in the family. Right. But like, <laughs> which I which Gail, I also where, do Gail, like after this, yeah. we're just gonna have a Zoom call for the next couple hours and rip them down all this stuff. Don't worry about it. All right. All right, so I'll go. I'll go TV. I'll go movie TV. I got to the theater over the weekend and I saw Triangle of Sadness. Oh, uh, this is new film from Neon Studios, which I guess we're, we're all film junkies here. For a lot of people, when they see the A24 logo, they're they're like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm part of something here. But for me, when I see the Neon logo, 
I'm just like, this is this, this is cinema. <laughs> you know, this is the studio that brought this film, uh, Parasite. Among, uh, what's the uh, the, uh, the, the 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 Kristen Stewart, Spencer? Oh yeah, Spencer. Yeah, uh-huh. the the Princess Die film. Just just a lot a lot of bangers from from the studio. So I enjoyed this movie. Uh, this is just basically shitting on rich people. This is um, as it should be. Yeah, this is just a bunch of super rich people on on a cruise ship, and just everything goes wrong quickly. It's 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 a comedy, but it, there are a lot of gross scenes in it. There's a notable funny scene where this one like just rich lady, they're on a motorboat and she's complaining that the sails are dirty. So she's telling like the whole staff, anyone who will listen to her. Uh, Woody Harrelson as a as a as a bit part in this movie as the captain oh. of the ship. Wow! And she goes up to Woody Harrelson and tells him that you know the sails are dirty on the ship, and he's he's just like, well, this is a motorboat, and she's, <laughs> like, she's like, yeah, I know. She, well, there there wouldn't be any sails, and like one of the staff just hits him on the arm, and he's just like, we'll clean the sails. <laughs> she was just, she was so satisfied, and so he in, in this movie he's he's billed as an American socialist. And there's another guy, another passenger on this ship who's a Russian capitalist named Dmitry. And the two, in one scene, the two of them have a political argument, but all they're doing is Googling Mark Twain and Karl Marx quotes at each other. And it's one of the funniest three minutes of movies I've seen this year. It was, just, it was so great really watching funny. this go at it. So um, the end of the movie is, is pretty wild. There's, there's, a, uh, there's some gross scenes. There's a South Park ish scene where literally the whole ship gets seasick and everyone's just vomiting on each other okay. so at, so that might not be your taste but this movie it was a lot of fun i don't know if it's gonna be in my top 10 for 2022 but i had wanted to see this for a while and i finally got it was in a playing in the theater locally and i got there and i i wasn't disappointed by it have either of you heard of this or no I've heard of it not but now now that you've recommended that i will check it out i wasn't sure until until we heard about it I recommend. It, it was a lot of fun. Um, I started. I watched the pilot of the Peripheral. On this yeah, is on yeah, Amazon, yeah. and this is with uh, Chloe Gra- Chloe Grace Morenz and Jack Rayner of Midsummer fame. Christian from Midsummer. Uh, they're a brother and sister. Don't really know what's going on yet. The first scene is set in 2099, and it's a, a little girl walks up to a guy on a bench, and it was like, "We need to essentially the world is ending, and we need to save the world." So he calls back to the year 2032. And this is where the Morantz and Rainer characters are. And she has to go into VR as one does. And I guess, you know, 2032, we might, we might fully be there. Who knows? But so she goes into a VR headset and has to like do all these things in the virtual reality world to allegedly save the world. Don't know what's going on yet. They're, they're airing the, the first two are on Amazon. Only watch the first one. I only had time for that but i really like the pilot so i'm definitely going to continue with this it's a good show on amazon prime either of you hear of this one uh yeah it's it, i i actually clicked play and then stuff happened and i had to stop so it, it is like i'm right there but i i, I do want to watch it and I, i'm very fascinated by the concept to see where they go with it based on what you've said and what i've seen so and this is one of my my rants against the binge model again because if like all the series was there and I was like, I only only watched the first one and everything was there. I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm so far behind, but (laughs) and I probably might've just given up. But the fact that I just have one episode and then we could just go week to week. um, Yeah. Dave, I know you, I know you don't love the binge model and I I do like the binge model because I have such a short attention span. I can't remember anything (laughs) ever, but um, I will say like when our group, the movie and television group was watching like, um, 
I mean, y'all are watching that dragon and then, <laughs> you know, ring shows, whatever, but I'm good. But um, when we were watching like yellow jackets, how yeah. fun was that? Or, or even succession when we watch yeah. that all together, it's just kind of this fun group experience and it feels a lot like the water cooler with lost sure. all over again. It's, it's a lot of fun. That's my, I mean, how many conversations did we have about Cobra Kai? Right. Or Ozark. I don't know. I don't watch that either. But yes, Ozark. Who talked about Ozark, the final season? It just came and went because they, they're insistent. And there was, I I posted the article in, in in disgust how Netflix is not shifting away from the binge model. So Mm -hmm. they're doubled down, man. They've said it. They're like, this is it. We're here. And I'm like, well, you're also getting rid of password sharing. So I don't really know what to tell you guys. Oh yeah. Fuck Netflix. (laughs) I feel like you're not playing the game anymore, friends. Good good luck. Yeah, They don't, they can't read the room. Gail, where can we follow you? Uh, you can come follow me over on Instagram. I am at it is that one broad. Awesome. Glenn? Uh, yeah, Instagram uh, at GlennThompson11. Also on Twitter at that same handle. Uh, please avoid the void if you can. But I am there. Um, Facebook at Glenn Thompson Creator, where I post a lot about the work I'm doing with various shows and things. So, um, you know, stuff's picking up, things coming back. The industry's sort of fully resurged finally, which is nice because we're seeing some cool stuff come out of that. Yeah. Um, so hopefully uh, more news to come. Excellent. And I am at DDEM2000, same across the board, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. You can also find uh, the show on Instagram and Twitter at was it that bad pod. Uh, we'll have our polls for the six man and MVP on there probably tomorrow. And also we show updates, quizzes, polls, or keep it active on there. Uh, if you like this movie, you want to talk about it with the three of us, or you want to talk about another movie or another show with a bunch of other great people, join the movie and television talk Facebook group. You can just type that into a group search. We are the red cover photo. We are officially finished with spooky season. I think, I think I'm happy with the, the choices we made and I look forward to uh, getting to some more next October might throw in a horror movie or two between now and then, but uh, happy with the choices we're shifting because we're doing a high school movie tournament in the movie group. So we're going to do some teen comedies for the next couple of weeks, starting next week with American pie. And then we're going to follow that up Aww. with 10, 10 things I hate <laughs> about you. So we got a couple, a couple classics, which we enjoy. I, Okay, so Gail, I can see by your look, you won't be voting for 10 things when it, when it comes I won't, up. But American Pie, totally, I know that I know that it has the potential to not hold up, but it holds up. You have yeah. Jim Levy, you have, um, you have Jennifer Coolidge, bless her heart, and it is, a, it is actually a sweet little movie, so I love it. I love it. Right. That I, spearheaded I mean, the movement, sure. yeah. No, it's it sure true. did, but vote for Clue for clueless though everybody because <laughs> well, that'll be i didn't get ahead of myself but that's three weeks yeah so you're we'll... doing clueless we are yes yeah oh so, wow yeah. so we got those are the three we went with for for the pod but yeah that's that's a little while away but i'll, I'll mention I'll, I'll mention it again so i won't forget um <laughs> glenn any thoughts on any of those i i mean the these are the films that I grew up with. Uh, I mean, I was the age, I think American Pie was a little bit before that, but the other ones are, are movies that were right on my, you know, coming of age experience. So, um, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a secret Shakespeare person. So that movie has always <laughs> spoken to me a little bit differently just because of that. Um, but American Pie is like, that one and the second one of American Pie are just like classics. I mean, they're grody as hell. They're, they're American Pie. They are. It, it also, the, the newest one, American Reunion, I it, think. It was raunchy. Good? It, it's good? 
Yeah. yeah. They're shockingly five. good. You look on IMDb, there's an American Pie 5 announced and as uh, Sean William Scott in the title. So I don't know. Fine. I'll watch it. Yep. I watched American Wedding. I didn't hit stop and I wanted to. Like, it's fine. I'll watch them. I've watched all of the straight to DVD American Pies. There was like. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, the Bandcamp ones. Those are like softcore porn. And it's just like. Yeah. They are. Yeah. And they're not so at all. graduated high school in the year of 2000. This came out in 99. I went to Bandcamp in 99 and I got tortured in 2000. So. <laughs> Everybody thinks they're the first person to tell you this one time at Bandcamp. Like, ah, oh, they do think I, that. They do you, think you that. You probably just hear that one time and just go, uh, uh no, no. Uh huh. Yeah, it's, it's just full on PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So look forward to all of those. Uh, Gail, Glenn, this was awesome talking to both of you. Banger of a movie. Uh, the Shining. Love it. Thank you for coming on. All right. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks, you Dave. It. No Anytime. Problem. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We will catch you all next time. Have a good night, everybody.